Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A federal court ruling has cleared the way for Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health to merge. The Federal Trade Commission and the Pennsylvania Attorney General's Office contested the merger, saying it would amount to a monopoly. Federal Judge John Jones disagreed. WITF's Transforming Health reporter Ben Allen has been following the court case closely and joins us to explain. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right, let's go with the disclaimers now because we have uh, (laughs) several here that we have to, to make. Smart Talk gets financial support from Pinnacle Health, and Transforming Health is supported in part by Penn State Health. And uh, to learn more about this issue, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care, check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and Wellspan Health. Now, Ben. Yes. I don't know whether uh, there is a better example of this changing tide of health care than what we're talking about today, because, I mean, this is not unique to Penn State Health nope. or Pinnacle Health. Nope. It is something that is happening around the country. But let's talk about the background of this one in particular. Uh, Provide some background for those who don't know. Yeah, you're going to have to go about two years back, and that's when these two health systems said that they were going to start talking about merging. Uh, Pinnacle Health, about a little bit, uh, I think right around a billion dollars in, in annual revenue. Penn State Health, a little bit more, about $1.7 billion in annual revenue. Penn State Health includes Penn State Hershey Medical Center, but also includes a lot of doctors' practices. and All throughout uh, Central yeah, Pennsylvania. And, yeah. and they've been uh, swallowing up a number of other hospitals as well. Pinnacle Health, three hospitals, uh, and then, uh, of course, a number of doctor's practices as well. So they start talking. They they reach this agreement that Pinnacle Health would become a part of Penn State Health, and then they go to regulators, and regulators have to basically decide what to do about this deal. And the Federal Trade Commission, which has oversight of all the U.S., and the State Attorney General's Office, which, of course, has oversight of this in Pennsylvania, both decide that they are going to take this to federal court. They are going to try to block this merger. And they go to federal court to basically um, stop the merger from starting, if you will. Um, so they go to federal court um, in, in Harrisburg, downtown Harrisburg. Uh, and it was a, a week of hearings. Uh, lots of lawyers in the courtroom for a big case like this. I heard estimates of maybe 25, 30, 40 lawyers involved in this case on both sides. And Judge John Jones makes this decision uh, that came out on Monday. The court hearing was about um, a month ago. Makes this decision that these two health systems can continue to talk about merging. Um and, and let's kind of set up an analogy here, Scott. Uh, that I should this give, is someone you have to give credit, yes, right? <laughs> I, I've got to give credit to, to Professor Hussey at uh, Widener Law Commonwealth. He he set this up for me because I was having a little, a little bit of trouble. I'm going to be honest. He's, he compared it to like baseball. So um, you're the merger is a baseball player, and uh, the baseball player uh, this team wants a baseball player. And to get on the team, uh, the judge has to make a decision. So in this case, Judge John Jones decides that the baseball player can be on the team. But now regulators have to decide, and this is an administrative hearing, regulators have to decide, can the baseball player play on the field? So 
Jones says, yeah, sure. Go ahead, as as Professor Hussey said. You're on the roster. Eat the sunflower seeds. Sit in the dugout. (laughs) Chew the big league chew. But can you actually get out and hit? Can he actually get out in the field and, and play second base? That is to be determined. Okay. All right. Now, that is that is the wide view. I yes. want to get into some specifics. And by the way, if you have a question or a comment on this, uh, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. Let's take a step back. Why yeah. merge? Why did they want to merge? So they want to merge because they say, you know, we're two completely different health systems, and we have some efficiencies here uh, and really could uh, actually uh, make a difference here. Each, each Penn, of them has an efficiency. Exactly. Penn State Health says we are running out of room. We need to build a bed tower, which would be a $277 million investment. We are running out of room um, at, at our campus, so we would have to build this, and that would be a big capital expense, and that would get passed on to consumers potentially. Pinnacle Health says, hey, we've got some room. Why don't, you, why don't you send some of your patients down here? So the two of them think, you know, there's a trade-off there. And then, frankly, Scott, you know, you can't ignore the the forces at play here. The Affordable Care Act is a big, invisible force in this. It has provided a hidden incentive for hospitals like this to merge. Um, You look at what is going on across the region and across the nation. Hospital after hospital is either affiliating or merging. Lancaster General and Penn Medicine in Lancaster County. You've got... uh, You've got uh, Wellspan uh, gobbling up a number of different facilities. You have uh, Holy Spirit affiliating with Geisinger in Cumberland County. This is not out of out of character for what's going on in the healthcare world. Um, I want to talk about though why this matters because people are going to hear this and say, "Okay, so what? I'm I, I'm still going to go to the same hospital and what is it as long as my doctors in that network, what does it matter?" Well, it all comes down to cost. This is uh cost, uh quality, innovation um in a in a merger, and this is the FTC and and what the state attorney general's office says. In a merger, what if these two merge and they're so big that they eliminate competition? And as a result, there isn't that pressure to keep costs down. There isn't that drive to keep the quality as highest as it can be. There isn't that uh, motivation to uh, innovate and try new things and get the, the next best thing in your hospital. What if you just elbow, what if this new entity, Penn State Health, elbows everybody out? Of course, the other side has a number of different arguments that we can get into, but um, that is the real concern here of regulators, at least. Uh, the real concern is that this could have a significant impact on cost, quality, innovation, and that they need to step in and stop this merger uh, so that you know they can actually um, ensure that people in this area are getting the bang for their buck. All right. So you know what you're describing, and you, you you've used the words in your story. The word in your story is that the Federal Trade Commission and the Attorney General's office was concerned about these two, if they merged, having a monopoly. Yeah. Judge Jones didn't buy that. Right. He didn't buy that at all. 
he basically said and and this is the 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 formulation he used he basically said they got the market all wrong the federal trade commission and state attorney general's office said the market was dauphin cumberland perry and lebanon counties these four counties uh in the mid-state dauphin cumberland perry and lebanon let me just repeat that again he said nah it's it's that's not right and he cited a case in the 1990s where you you draw a circle essentially around the hospitals and few people need can enter that circle and few people leave that circle i know that sounds really complicated but basically think of it this way in 2014 he says 43.5% of Hershey's patients came from outside that four-county area, 43.5%. And more than half of their revenue that year in 2014 came from outside that four-county area that the government defined. So he said it's too narrow. If, if half of their revenue, more than half of their revenue is coming from outside this four-county area that the government says they, these two hospitals compete in, how can you say that when – a lot of people are coming in from outside the area. Um, he also says, you know, there's there's this rate agreement that these two uh, health systems have made, which would become one, Penn State Health. Um, they made this rate agreement, a five-year deal with Highmark, a 10-year deal with Capital Blue Cross. Those are the two major health insurers in the region that they won't raise rates. They will not raise rates for five years with Highmark. 10 years with Capital Blue Cross. Dealing with those two health systems. Exactly. Right. They will stay in network. They won't raise rates. Judge Jones says that is, quote, extremely compelling. He says, the FTC is asking me to predict what's going to happen to rates in five years. I can't do that. I know what I have right in front of me right now, and they've agreed not to change their rates for at least five years with the two biggest health insurers that control almost 80% of the market in this region. You know, when you, Judge Jones has a good reputation, and you know he has made rulings in several high-profile cases: uh, the Dover yep. intelligent design case, uh, the same-sex marriage case, legalized same-sex marriage here in in Pennsylvania. He also has a reputation for when he makes his decisions, explaining it pretty extensively. Yeah. What law did he base this on? I mean, you know, because let's face it, judges, uh, this sounds this sounds different than just a cut and dried. Is this constitution? Does it constitutional? Right. Does this follow the letter of the law? It, it sounds as if just what you said earlier about I can't tell what the rates are going to be ten years from now. What law does he base this on? So he uses a couple things. There's there's a test here, and it's it's um, super complicated. I'm not going to get into it, but basically there's there's a the first test is the government has to prove where the market is, and this is part of what's known as the Clayton Act. The government has to prove, and the onus is on the government here. That's that's the key. The onus is on the regulators to get the market definition right. So to to say where these health systems. Uh, compete. So they have to say that. But then the onus then moves to um, figuring out, you know, beyond just uh, getting the market right, what kind of impact it will have on consumers. So there is, you know, in a lot of cases, Scott, you might hear, ah, there isn't a whole lot of case law on this, and this is kind of, you know, a, a groundbreaking decision. Frankly, in this case, there is a lot of case law. You know, I read through the 26-page decision a lot, uh, probably three or four times over the past 48 hours, and 
almost every other line he's citing or his clerks are citing some other case. So um, there is a lot of case law here. We're going to get into, uh, right after the break, I want to get into what um, what could happen next and what the critics are saying about this decision and what experts are saying about this decision because, you know, um, I think, Scott, uh, this while the health systems have said, you know, they've cleared a major hurdle and this moves things forward, um, this this uh, this this saga is not over. As you, uh, you said earlier, they're on the team. We'll, yes, we'll talk they're about, on the team. We'll, but we'll talk about whether they make it to the playing field in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. WITF's Transforming Health reporter Ben Allen is with us to explain the merger between uh, Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health. Judge John Jones, a federal judge, ruled earlier this week that that merger could continue. But it does not mean it is the end of the story. If you have a question or a comment, understand that this is something that is complicated. But maybe you have a question about what does this mean to you as a patient of the, those two health systems or maybe even outside those health systems. Our phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's uh, Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. All right, Ben, let's uh, take the next step. Yeah. Uh, From what I understand, often when a judge makes a ruling like this, that's the end. Right. But not in this case, it doesn't sound like that's going to be the case. Okay, so there are two different paths, and uh, I'm, I'm going to ask people to bear with me here. Two different paths. One path, the administrative hearing. This is, again, you're on the team. Do you get to play on the field? This would be in D.C., in Washington, D.C., next week. And it's FTC judges, Federal Trade Commission judges, and they would actually be ruling. Do you get to play on the field? Um and in, in, in those kinds of proceedings, it's usually, you know, think about uh, a merger between, you know, let's say Staples and Office Depot that, that, uh, and that just came out uh, today. You know, you often hear Staples says, okay, fine, regulators, you, you're, you, what do we need to do to, to be able to merge? Regulators will say, uh, shed 400 stores. Uh, and then you can merge. You get out of these 50 markets, and then you two can merge. Well, in a hospital situation, that's a little tricky. I mean, do you say, uh, shed that hospital. That hospital, you got to sell off or get a competitor in there. So what you could see in administrative hearing is, uh, do you promise to, or you have to make a deal that uh, maybe you don't compete in this specialty line of care. Maybe you don't offer, you know, one specialty line, or maybe you have to shed some doctor's office, you know, stuff like that. That could happen in the administrative hearing next week. That assumes that the administrative hearing actually happens. Of course, this is court. There's appeals. Uh, and appeals are, are likely, uh, in this case, uh, judging from uh, an expert I talked to who's very familiar with this. This is Dr. Graney at uh, the St. Louis uh, School of Law Health Policy Center there. And he um, said that um, he expects the Federal Trade Commission and State Attorney General's Office to argue vigorously that the judge got it wrong on definition. He basically says, well, if you draw circles, remember, let's go back to that circle. If you draw a circle about where patients come from, that's not the right formulation. That isn't what courts have typically used, according to, to this expert. He said a lot more of this 
is based on how health insurers view a merger. And in this case, Capital Blue Cross and Highmark have said they would not, in, in court filings, they have said they would not be able to market a health plan without the new Penn State Health. Without the merger. Without the merger. So they could, they, they've said, yeah, maybe, you know, if Pinnacle Health and Penn State Health stay separate, we could market a plan with just Pinnacle, or we could market a plan with just Penn State Health. But if they come together, if Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health come together to form this new four-hospital system, these health insurers have said, we can't market that plan. Dr. Graney, this, this expert, has said, that is key, because now they know they have leverage. These, this, this new health system knows they have leverage to raise prices because the health insurers say they need them in their plan. So he expects that in, in an appeal, if one came, um, that the Federal Trade Commission would say that. They would, and State Attorney General's office would say that. They would point to um, the fact that other courts have, have, uh, have looked at that um, circle, if you will, that circle formulation, and, uh, and go from there. He also says that when you think about healthcare, it's a little funky, Scott. You know, the a test that was used, um, he says, is more applicable to retail stuff. And he actually goes back to coal companies, where if you draw a circle, then it makes a little bit more sense because uh, if you're not going to get your your coal from Pittsburgh, well, maybe you'll get it from you know another part of the country because so what? It's coal. Why do you use coal as a name? I, I guess that's just where this came from. You know, um, I am. Um, I, you know, you're just the reporter. I, you're the messenger. So, um, but he said that was originally that whole circle thing was originally originally came uh, from from the coal world, where in healthcare. Whether these two merge or not, if you're in Hershey, you're probably still going to go to Penn State Hershey Medical Center. Right. You're not going to drive to Geisinger and Danville or to Philly uh, to go to Penn uh, to get your cancer care. If if you can get it at Penn State well, Hershey Medical that's Center, that's one of the keys. Gonna, yeah. If you can get it there, I mean, yeah. th- we do know that there are patients who go to other oh, sure. hospitals oh, sure. for sure. other specialties. Yeah. Johns Hopkins, Penn, sure. absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, you know, hospitals like that. But uh, I want to go back to uh, the Capital Blue Cross, yeah, uh, and, and the in- insurance part of it. But you said that they testified that they could not market. If the two were separate, aren't they doing that now? Okay, no, they testified that they couldn't market if the two came together. Oh, okay. Yes, okay, yeah. Okay. So if they're saying if Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health become a four hospital system known as Penn State Health, how do you market? You can't, they argue, you can't market a plan that excludes Harrisburg Hospital, West Shore Hospital, Community Osteopathic, and Penn State Hershey Medical Center. They say you can't market that kind of plan in these four counties, Cumberland, Perry, Lebanon, and Dauphin. But yet, just as you said earlier, they did say that uh, they would hold the rates for how many years? Five years for, uh, let me see, five years. Uh, for Highmark, I believe, yeah, five years for Highmark and ten years for Capital Blue Cross. And again, that goes back to to what the judge says. One other one other point on this that I just want to make, Scott. Um, 
that that um, that argument that they can't market um, a, a plan that doesn't include all four of these new merged hospitals, um, that I think holds some weight at least in a court because in the past, Capital Blue Cross or Highmark, I, I don't remember exactly which one, but one of the health insurers went and and plotted those hospital systems against each other. So they said, you know, hospital system X, well, hospital system Y is going to give us this reimbursement rate. You better get down to that reimbursement rate or we're cutting you out of the network and you're going to lose all our patients or a good portion of our patients. So that argument, they, they lend some credence to that because they have previously plotted these health systems against each other in negotiations to keep costs down. Well, one thing that uh, we can say, and it, this has been shown over and over and over, is that the competition between these health systems, uh, the hospitals, even the individual hospitals, uh, is intense. It's, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, uh, for patients, you don't see it. Be, most consumers don't see it. But behind the scenes, it is going on all the time. Oh, and there were emails that came out in court. And, I mean... I think that, uh, you know, if, if we were just talking about competition here, I think we would be talking about a very different case, Scott. But um, it, there's no doubt that these two health systems um, have battled for patients. In one case, I remember in court, um, they brought up an example where uh, a uh, Pinnacle built that West Shore hospital. And part of the rationale cited um, in, in documents that were presented in court was to steal patients from Penn State Hershey. Um, and that was written down. Uh, so uh, you know that, that when, when that's written down, that's a very real, vigorous competition that's going on. We have an email, or excuse me, we have a, a phone call here from Michael in Enola. Michael, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so my, my comments uh, to go off of the, the baseball analogy that the, the judge used. Um, I'd like to think of it a little bit differently instead of thinking of the hospitals as individual players, thinking of them as uh, teams instead and the individual players as uh, hospital systems within, so doctor's offices, hospitals, um, labs, et cetera. Um, and if you think of Pinnacle Health and Hershey as the Mets and the Yankees, they're both in the same area, um, the Yankees have a bigger reach because they're uh, a better team, quote-unquote. Um, and Penn State is a level one trauma center compared to, to um, Pinnacle Health. So they have a bigger outreach. Um, and the merger between the two is going to be kind of like a super team that would be in this, this area. Um, so people get more access to more care, be in the same health system without having to worry to go too far from, from where they're at right now. Um, but this kind of super team is similar to what UPMC has going on out in Pittsburgh, where they've decided that they want to make their own insurance company, um, and they're only accepting their insurance um, that they offer. And so with this Highmark Blue Shield saying they can't make a plan for um, this Penn State Health Super System, um, UPMC is doing the exact same thing. And the uh, patients out there are actually having a harder time finding doctors they can go to or paying a lot more to go to see the doctors they've been seeing for the past 20 years. And, and Scott, I think this is exactly, uh, and the caller touches on it, this is exactly the argument that the Federal Tr Trade Commission and State Attorney General's office made, that you can't... Um, you know, this is going to make, quote-unquote, a super team, and it's going to be too hard uh, for, for consumers to and for health insurers to bargain with this super team because consumers are going to demand that these health systems are in their network. Mm -hmm. um, so um, now 
to take the other side here, uh, Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health will say we compete with more than just Holy Spirit and Carlisle Regional. We compete with Johns Hopkins, and we compete with UPenn, and we compete with Geisinger and Danville. Lancaster General. Lancaster General. I mean, they they have their own argument that, you know, we need to be a super team so we can compete with these other super teams that are just outside of our reach. So, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough case. It really is. Michael, thank you very much for your call, and I'm glad he brought that to uh, our attention. Uh, we have an email here from Kay in Hummelstown. Uh, said, Geisinger Insurance will not cover Hershey Med uh, Penn State. Does that relate to the merger? Uh, she just wanted to mention this. Yeah, yeah, it's a little that's a little tricky. Um that came up in a in a court in one of the court hearings um that I sat in on and that was it's not really related to the merger. That was more a question of um could they get enough people to sign up for that um health uh insurance in particular that were also going uh to Penn State Hershey. So, um well, a, a good point and uh, certainly something to note. Um that Geisinger health plan really isn't much of a factor here in the mid-state, so um, not much uh, going on there. Scott, before we wrap up, um, wanted to touch on a couple things. I mentioned that appeal. Um, an appeal is, like I said, uh, uh, in, in talking with um, an expert, um, he expects the FTC to appeal, this expert from St. Louis School of Law. Um, and he says this would go to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which uh, covers Pennsylvania. And on this, and this is the key thing, they are reasonably favorable to the FTC on these kinds of matters. Oh, really? So we are going to have to see, um, and, and let's be real here, uh, this isn't going to the Supreme Court. So let's just put the brakes on that right now. So the Third if Circuit, the third circuit the, yeah. is the final decider here. Uh, he says that they are reasonably favorable. They're not completely favorable, but reasonably favorable on a case like this, and they would be the quote-unquote decider in this. Well, trying to predict what courts are going to do can be uh, a little little bit hairy, too. A couple quick questions, Ben. Uh, One thing that may be confusing for our listeners is uh, you talk about the regulators, that this is— a Federal Trade Commission administrative court, but yet it is the Federal Trade Commission who is contesting this. Think of it as traffic court. You know, if you went to traffic court and you got a traffic ticket, it's not DMV employees that are making your decision, but, you know, it's someone that um, is a is an administrative law judge that is going to say, hey, you know, this, yeah, this passes muster. So they are still impartial, but it's just kind of like a different kind of system. I will say this, Scott. If there is an appeal, basically forget about that administrative court. Forget about that. Those, that hearing, in all likelihood, will just get canceled or postponed, and the appeal will be the final decision. Okay. Uh, one final question. Uh, we talked about uh, this happening, these mergers happening all over the country. Is this the future of health care? Judge, Judge Jones talks about that a little bit, and it, it's, it's tricky um, because— uh, there is that incentive for ho- hospital systems to merge. Uh, there, it, it comes from the Affordable Care Act. It comes from uh, just where health care is going. Um, I think what I would feel more comfortable saying is just that um, I would not be surprised if more of these happen because, frankly, if you think about it, health care is becoming 
it was it was never really let's be real it was never um or to call a healthcare consumer driven yeah. it would have been uh, a, a fallacy right. 20 years ago now consumers are driving decisions and you think about geisinger i mean geisinger now offers a money back guarantee. guarantee right yeah. would we have ever seen that 15 no, or 20 years ago but it still has a long way to go. It, it still I mean, has a long talking, way to go. Absolutely. When you're talking about, uh, you know, consumers checking prices and looking for competition, uh, it's not like a retail, uh, you know, establishment or a uh, or a restaurant where you go in and I'm going to buy something that's going to yep. cost me less here because for the most part, it's more difficult to find out what a procedure does cost at different hospitals, but. The insurance companies will check that out yeah. for you. And yeah. and it's moving in that direction. And I want to mention one thing. President Obama has made it part of his goal in his final year. Let's see what, what happens here. But he said one of the things he wants to take on is health care billing. Not exactly the sexiest issue, but something that affects everybody. So many times I hear, I don't I don't get what this charge is. I don't right. get what this right. I'm a healthcare reporter. I don't understand what some of these charges are. So I you know, I think that more and more we are going to see things start to crack here and there. And let's be real here, Scott Healthcare is unlike any other market out there because at some time in your life, you're not going to have a choice where you get your health care because you're going to need the closest emergency room because you're going through a serious health emergency. So there's all that kind of jumbled in here. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's always fun, never boring. <laughs> ben Allen is WITF's Transforming Health Reporter. Ben, thank you very much for the explanation. Today. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Centers for Disease Control say sexually transmitted diseases are on the rise, especially amongst young people. The CDC reports one in four adolescent females has an STD. It's the first time since 2006 cases of chlamydia, syphilis, and gonorrhea have increased. It was reported last year that the Harrisburg-Carlisle region had one of the highest rates of STDs in Pennsylvania. And even though it varies, there are pockets of growth around the state. Wanted to talk about this with Dr. Lauren Robinson, who is the Deputy Secretary for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Dr. Robinson, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. And I have to have that disclaimer that, you know, these rates increasing, it's not happening everywhere. I mean, I, I saw a story that said that, uh, you know, a couple of the STDs are increasing here in Pennsylvania, but the other is pretty steady. But the CDC says it's on the rise across the country. Why do you think that's happening? So I think that there's a couple things to consider when we look at, at STD rates. So in Pennsylvania, um, we have not seen yet the increase in the, the three that we're really talking about are chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. So in terms of how we're doing as a state, our gonorrhea rates are down. Uh, our chlamydia rates rose slightly last year, but the thing we've been most concerned about is uh, in primary and secondary syphilis. And that's where we're seeing the big increase. So in 2015, we saw about a 58% increase in the number of cases uh, from from 
the cases that we had seen in 2014. Some of that we think is because we're doing better testing. I think we're doing we're getting a better job at getting the word out, letting young people know to get tested, to get screened, uh, to really take accountability for their health. Um, but there is concern that we are seeing higher rates in younger people. Um, and, and I think that that's something we need to think about when we do our, our sex education, when parents are talking to their kids, uh, that they need to protect themselves. The CDC says that I think it's just over 50% of the new cases are are being diagnosed in the 15 to 24 age group. Now, you know, traditionally that's when people who aren't married or don't have a significant other are most sexually active. So is that unusual that it, it's, it, it's rising amongst that age group across the country? That's not unusual, Scott. We do see, we do see and expect to see those, those cases on the rise. If you look around Pennsylvania, our hotspots are where some of our colleges and universities are. Um, you know, people get to college and try a lot of different new things new classes, new friends, um, and unfortunately there's there are new sexual experiences and they're not protecting themselves. And so um, we really need to do um, some really robust outreach in terms of our education. Um, th- these, uh, these rates kind of ebb and flow, and so we'll see them kind of go on the uptick and then kind of go under the radar for a while, and then they uptick again. Um, we have really great uh, screening procedures uh, in the state of Pennsylvania for that, um, and we have really great education campaigns as well. Uh, one of the things that's newer um, in this kind of demographic as we see younger people being diagnosed um, is in men who have sex with men, um, both older populations, but also younger populations, which again, I think uh, speaks to new experiences that people are having at at younger ages. Um, But we haven't had um, very robust screening campaigns or prevention campaigns or education campaigns for that population before. Uh, And so that's something that we are looking into uh, as a Department of Health. Now, that population that you're talking about, uh, men having sex with men, uh, a lot of the attention over the past 30 years has focused on HIV. Now, we're not talking about HIV here today, but do you know why? Is it just because that we've seen that increase in men uh, testing? Is, is it syphilis, by the way? I think it's syphilis in between. I mean, in particular, isn't it? So it's primary and secondary syphilis that we're talking about here. So it's the same disease. There's just different presentations of it. But syphilis is what we're primarily talking about. And yes, we do see that in men who have sex with men as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have to say that the statistic that really kind of surprised me was that one from the CDC of one in four adolescent females having, uh, you know, tested positive for an STD. I mean, that's an, an incredible statistic. It is. And I think what I think a lot of the messaging around sex education in the 80s and 90s or Primary, the early sex education was really about preventing pregnancy. You don't have sex when you're uh, not married. If you do, you definitely don't want to get pregnant. And so there's so much messaging around pregnancy being this thing that we were so scared of that I think uh, early on in the public health uh, foray, we kind of missed the ball in terms of educating young people about um, sexually transmitted diseases. I know when I had my my growth and development night, it was all about you know, growth and development, your body is changing, and now your body may be able to have a baby. But they didn't talk about sexually transmitted diseases at all. And I think that that's something that we need to think about in terms of incorporating at an earlier age, um, because younger people are experimenting and are doing things. And I think um, everyone is, is, is kind of scared of sex, and children or young adults and adolescents don't talk so much about sex. But there are other things that they do that people don't think about as sex. They're just kind of these roundabout activities that still put them at risk for these sexually transmitted diseases. Well, like what? Uh, so I think that um, tradi- so 
traditional intercourse is what uh, young people, people think, think of. of as sex. Can't, but can't get the STD unless uh, I have intercourse. Exactly. But there's still oral sex. There's anal sex. There's um, different things that people are doing. There's a lot of girlfriend-boyfriend swapping. There's a lot of experimenting, having a boyfriend and girlfriend at the same time. Um, even in as low as our 7th and 8th graders, uh, we're seeing. And I think the other thing is when we say adolescence, a lot of people still think, oh, that's that's teenagers, that's 18 to 21, but we're really talking even in turn down to about you know 13 to 16, that age group is still active, and I think uh, parents and schools need to really take a robust look at what the young adults and what these uh, teenagers and young uh, teenagers are doing. You know, there are some statistics, though, that are of a positive nature, and it's all related in a lot of ways. One is that the teen pregnancy rate in Pennsylvania is actually down. It is. And this is a trend that we're seeing across the country. So uh, th- we have done a really great job at educating about teen pregnancy. Again, in Pennsylvania, there are places that we have pockets uh, where we have um, higher than the average teen, teen pregnancy rate. But across the, across the state, our teen pregnancy rates are down. I think we've done a great job of education. And I think uh, that also speaks to um, people protecting themselves, using condoms, uh, people, uh, young ladies getting on birth control to prevent pregnancy. Um, having access to and having access to the provider to have that conversation or if parents feel comfortable having that conversation with their parents. But I think a lot of times those conversations uh, really focus on pregnancy and pregnancy alone. And so everyone pretty much knows how to prevent pregnancy, but they don't talk about sexually transmitted infections um, and definitely not the you know gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia specifically. We're talking about uh, sexually transmitted diseases across the country and here in Pennsylvania. Our guest today is Dr. Lauren Rod- Robinson, who is the Deputy Secretary for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. But getting back to the teen pregnancy rate dropping, but, okay, you mentioned syphilis and you know, we're not in Pennsylvania anyway. We're not seeing, uh, you know, the increases in chlamydia or gonorrhea, but we are across the country. That doesn't seem to make sense when you look at the two side by side. If teen pregnancy is down, I mean, if teenage girls are protecting themselves or their partner, you know, using a condom, wouldn't that mean that uh, these these STD rates wouldn't increase? I think that what. I think what we're seeing is that I think that the the teenagers and young adults, I think when they engage in activities outside of traditional sexual intercourse, I don't think that they're wearing condoms. Okay. I think that that's what we're saying. I think everyone knows that if you have sexual, full, full on sexual intercourse, you can, can you can become pregnant that way. And so they're protecting themselves and wearing condoms. I think in terms of oral sex, anal sex, because they can't get pregnant, they're like, oh, great, I can't get pregnant, so I'd, I'm not at risk. Um, and you know, when you're in school with someone, or you're in an after school program, or you play sports with someone, you think, oh, they're they're cool, they're my friend, or I've known them my whole life, or they don't they don't look like they could have an STD. And I think that uh, what young people don't realize, and probably older people as well, is that uh, people don't look like they have an STD. Um, and you, you Just because someone's your friend, just because they go to your church or your temple or your mosque, doesn't mean that they couldn't be carrying an STD. Uh, I think one of the things also about um, syphilis, uh, gonorrhea, and chlamydia, more actually chlamydia and syphilis, both of which are, are, are trending up, um, are that those are things that you're not necessarily symptomatic 
from. And we're to talk about that. Uh, and th- that can create a lot of confusion, too, when you say that, you know, these, these diseases don't show a whole lot of symptoms. What are the symptoms and what happens if you don't show symptoms? So not so not everyone will show every symptom. Uh, the symptoms of syphilis can be uh, a discharge uh, either from the vagina or from the penis. Um, it can be a, a rash or a sore on the penis or the vagina. Um, a lot of young people don't um, take a good look at themselves. They're just like, that's the down there. I take a quick shower. They're not really inspecting their bodies and seeing what's changing. Um, the sore or the rash that's associated with uh, syphilis is a painless sore. So uh, people talk about herpes. Herpes is a very painful disease. Genital herpes is very painful. When you have a sore from syphilis, you wouldn't feel that. Uh, the only symptom of chlamydia would be uh, a discharge from the penis or from the vagina, and not everyone has that discharge. So you could have had uh, a sexual encounter with someone or had some type of form of sexual encounter, had no symptoms, and go on to your next partner and never know that you're having this disease that you may be passing person to person. Um, I think there, traditionally, I think, you know, if you go back 30, 40 years, it was very stressed that the person that you're having sexual intercourse with or the person that you're doing these activities with is usually the person you're going to end up spending the rest of your life with. And now there's a lot more um, kind of casual sex, casual sexual encounters, um, casual sexual activity, sharing of partners, switching of partners, um, that I think is more espoused and is more acceptable in younger populations than it had been in the past. And so that also um, can lead to this. And I think, um, you know, the, the stigma of having an STD is something that also keeps people from kind of disclosing to someone. Um, because as a, as a young person, acceptance is so important. And so they're not going to say, oh, I have an STD. And I think also I don't think that young people, uh, male or female, are really empowered to ask their partner, have you gotten tested? Because they don't think of that. They go to the doctor just to get kind a regular checkup. Kind of ruins a moment. At that, uh, yeah. Yeah. This, this is true. A real downer. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but w- when you're thinking about that, and you had mentioned earlier that uh, you know we have improved testing a whole lot. What are the recommendations for, for getting tested? So anyone who is sexually active uh, should be getting uh, routine testing for sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, Usually this translates to meaning once a year. In terms of our syphilis screening, because we have seen such an increase in the number of cases of syphilis in in Pennsylvania, and when we look at that number of cases, a lot of people um, kind of across the state will say, oh, that's only in our urban areas. Philadelphia is making the state look bad. But when we look at the state in terms of STDs, we actually subtract Philadelphia because we know that Philadelphia has a very large and, and diverse population, and we really need to know what the state is doing exclusive of Philadelphia. And so when we talk about this rise in cases, we're talking about the whole state exclusive of the city of Philadelphia. So I think that's important to realize. Um, And then to address the... increase in number of cases of syphilis specifically, we're implementing rapid uh, syphilis testing. So that means you go to areas where you have had, uh, you look at clinics across the state and say, okay, if this is a, a clinic that has had high rates of syphilis positive tests, we'll go there and do increased screening. Uh, because we've seen increased rates in men who have sex with men, we're going to um, gay campsites, we're going out to um, gay health centers, and going out to LGBT communities to their events to say, hey, your communities have higher rates of syphilis, you have higher rates of this STD. We want to make sure that we're offering you the screening, getting you linked to care, because um, for syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea, those are treatable conditions. So those are things that you can take an an antibiotic for. You treat it, and it's gone. You no longer have it, as opposed to a virus like HIV, which you would have for your whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's important to know that you can get treated, you can get cured, um, and that 
it's important to do that because if you don't, there can be really uh, deleterious um, side effects uh, or or progressions from these well, like diseases. What? So syphilis is one that we've known for a really long time. There was a big um, public health campaign kind of back in the 30s and 40s to think about. There was a there was actually unfortunately. One of the um, dark moments in public health history was the Tuskegee experiment, mm-hmm. um, and that was wherein um, African American men um, who were who had been infected with syphilis were told they were getting treatment for syphilis, but they actually were not. They were just being monitored to see the natural nat- natural disease progression. So uh, syphilis starts off as this painless rash, um, maybe a little bit of discharge, but progresses rapidly to create sores kind of across your body. People can go completely blind. You can have permanent uh, brain damage. You can go. Uh, clinically insane. Um, it it is a very progressive and very sad disease that, um, if caught early, you treat with penicillin. Yeah, throughout history, there have been cases of well-known people who have died of syphilis. Al Capone is one I can think of, but yeah, you go even back further than that. Do people still die of syphilis today? We have not seen deaths from syphilis. Uh, kind of in the Commonwealth and really across the country. I'd have to double check in terms to make sure to say no one has died of syphilis. Um, but usually I think, again, with our routine health screenings, um, with the when someone presents with a certain kind of constellation of symptoms, whether it's a rash on their skin, um, the rash of syphilis a lot of times will be on your palms and soles, and there's not a lot of rashes that go on your palms and soles. Yeah. Um, and so as a healthcare provider, when you see that and you talk to someone about their sexual history and find out if they've even had unprotected sex once, um, it's a very quick test that you can test for. Um, in pregnancy, a, a screening syphilis test and GC chlamydia, those those are all tested for um, in addition to HIV. But when you go for your routine prenatal care when a woman is pregnant, she is getting tested for that. And I believe that um, she's tested for syphilis twice. Can't, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, one of the reasons that pregnant women are tested is it can be handed down uh, that the, the baby uh, can be have the disease as well, correct? Yes, we call that congenital syphilis. And so so uh, because babies are um, cute and adorable but have very uh, weak immune systems when they're first born, um, syphilis in a newborn can be devastating. So they can be blind. They can have really bad trouble um, um, respiratory-wise and have trouble breathing, um, trouble with their growth and development. And it really um, can be a terrifying um, journey for the mother and the child if the child is born with congenital syphilis. And that's why there's been this big campaign. And if a woman presents to prenatal care late and we don't know what her uh, syphilis status is or her GC chlamydia um, at the time of delivery, she will get IV antibiotics to treat presumptively just in case, just to prevent her um, from potentially passing that uh, that disease on to the child. What does the law say, if anything, about having to inform a partner uh, that once you've been uh, diagnosed with, uh, with one of these diseases? So uh, I would have to check to see exactly what the law says. There are um, these diseases do count as reportable conditions, meaning if someone tests positive, that data is put into a database that's reported to the CDC. And then we do have a kind of public health investigation where we try to get in touch with the person and track down their partners. Um, but I think because of the stigma associated with STDs, I don't think that uh, disclosure is something that happens very often. Mm. I mean, I, I do, and again, I, I, maybe I'm saying this because I'm basing it on television shows, and that's not a good place to do it when you're talking about a fictional TV show. But often, that when you see something like this, and a di- doctor has diagnosed it, they'll ask about the partners, who they are, have they been told, that kind of thing. I mean, does that happen in real in the real world? So it does happen. I think it's difficult with teenagers and with young adults um, because they're. Um, 
<laughs> not as good with data. So they might say, well, that's, you know, there was this guy I hooked up with. It was Jimmy from art class. But they might not know Jimmy's last name. Or maybe they met on a, a combined field trip at an amusement park. I don't know what school he goes to. They're not as good as keeping track of details. Um, and actually, sadly, some young adults and actually older adults are not as good as keeping track of details of, of people that they've had sexual encounters with. So while the doctors will ask, um, sometimes patients are hesitant to, to, to give that information. And sometimes they really don't know. You know, it might be a good idea to get a detail like the name of the person you're hooking up with. That, that, that'd be a great first step. We could start, we could start there. Yeah, that, that would be a good first step there. Um, what about uh, what about the treatments? You had talked about penicillin. I mean, are there other antibiotics out there that are being used? And I mean, you mentioned you know herpes, HIV. Those things are that, that's lifelong, mm -hmm. but these can be can be cured. Yes, these can be cured, and there's actually multiple. There's different regimens. So depending on how sick somebody is, people can get pretty sick with um, gonorrhea and chlamydia to the point where they might need hospitalization. If you get to the point where you're so sick with a sexually transmitted disease that you need hospitalization, you'll get IV antibiotics, meaning they put an IV in, they're giving you IV fluids, you're staying in the hospital for a few days. Um, but for the most part, if they catch these early, you're not symptomatic or you're not sick. Uh, you can get treated as an outpatient and just go to the pharmacy, pick up some pills, um, and for the most part, be done with treatment in as little as five to seven days. Mm -hmm. uh, on the Department of Health website, CDC website, almost anywhere where you're, you're reading about uh, uh, STDs, you know, when it talks about how to prevent it, uh, the first thing you see is abstinence. Abstinence is like the only way, really, that uh, you can be 100% sure that uh, you're not going to, uh, to uh, contract one of these diseases. But what are some of the other recommendations? You mentioned, you've touched on a few, but what are some of the other recommendations? So kind of immediately after abstinence would be condoms, latex condoms. Uh, the ba barrier methods are the best way to protect yourself if you are going to engage in intercourse. I think one of the challenges there uh, is that people don't use condoms the same way every time. Uh, sometimes people will start having intercourse or start um, hooking up, for lack of a better word, and then decide to put a condom on kind of halfway through. Or um, people will try to do different kind of things with condoms. The main thing is uh, to use a condom th the same way from the beginning every time. Um, also, um, don't try to double up. Um, kind of young, Sometimes young people always think that more is more, and so we'll try to put two condoms on at the same time. You don't need to do that. They should not do that. One condom is fine, and that's all that they need. Um, and then for oral sex, um, there are dental dams that are also made of latex. Really, you want to have a barrier between yourself and the other person to protect both of you. Uh, well, it's not the most pleasant of the topics, but uh, unfortunately, it's one that has to be dealt with uh, in, a, in a way. The education it has to be very important, too. We only have about 30 seconds left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, you know, this is something that parents need to talk to their kids about. We Parents must talk to their kids about it. There's so much variation in our education systems about what's talked about, what's not talked about. Sometimes in health class, we learn about these things just in terms of as a biologic process, just like we learn about heart disease and that. But in terms of protecting ourselves and what we can do as a community, parents um, really need to do a really good job at educating their kids. Dr. Lauren Robinson is the Deputy Secretary for Health Promotion and Disease Prevention with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Dr. Robinson, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much, Scott. I really appreciate it. Coming up on tomorrow's program. We're going to talk about suicide prevention. That's on tomorrow's Smart Talk.